episode 75 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Yeah, my name is Mark Palm. I'm the co-founder CEO of Samaritan Aviation. I fly uh, seaplanes in Papua New Guinea, uh, rescuing people on a very remote river. What is going on, AV Nation? Welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today is a great episode. I know that I've said that multiple times, but I truly believe this is a great episode. Today, I'm talking with Mark Palm. Mark Palm is a seaplane pilot out in Papua New Guinea. He flies for a company that he co-founded called Samaritan Aviation. And what Samaritan Aviation does is truly impact lives in Papua New Guinea. It's the only way for some of these tribes to get to a hospital or to get medication. So they are dealing with a lot. They are flying people constantly. There's a lot of emergencies in the episode. He talks about people dying in the airplanes, limbs being chopped off, tribal wars. So it's just a different kind of aviation, a different way that we can use aviation to impact the community. So it's it's great to hear. It's a, it's a great story. And I'm very happy that Mark wanted to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about it because I think it's something that needs to be talked about. So it's a great opportunity and I'm very thankful. If you enjoy this episode, please let us know. You can review on iTunes. You can let me know via Instagram at pilot to pilot. All our other social media platforms are also pilot to pilot. If you want to email me, send me an email at pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. Also check out our Patreon page. Special shout out today to our Patreon of the week, Thomas London. Thomas London is a $20 supporter. I hope you enjoy that shirt, Thomas. Thanks for the support. Also guys, I just I'm really excited about this episode. So go ahead and enjoy this episode. Share it with everyone you know. Spread the word of Pilot to Pilot. Get it out there. Everyone should be listening to this podcast, but I hope you enjoy it. So without any further ado, here's Mark Palm. Mark, what is going on? Welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Great to be with you. Yeah, no, I'm excited to have you on. And we were talking a little bit earlier about what you do, and it is just so cool. And I've never talked to anyone on the podcast that has the experience that you have and has done the type of flying that you have. So I'm really looking forward to, to you telling your story and talking a little about what you do and what your mission is. Yeah, it, I'm looking forward to sharing it. It's been it's an amazing journey and um, just getting started, I feel like. so. Yeah, definitely. And the first thing I always do in the podcast is I go ahead and start from the beginning. I start with you and I start why you got into aviation. So go ahead and talk a little bit about why and what the original inspiration was for you starting in aviation. Yeah, for me, aviation was kind of a family thing. My my grandfather flew in World War II, uh, flew P-31s and uh, also DC-4s and some different things. And um, yeah, military side, then I had uh, two uncles that flew airplanes uh, growing up. My cousin was a military uh, prowler pilot. Now he flies for Delta. So I kind of had this aviation background, uh, kind of hearing stories as a kid growing up. And so I was always inspired to... Uh, to uh, initially be this uh, military or commercial pilot, kind of following my my family's uh, footsteps, and so that kind of is where the whole aviation side for me began as a young boy, hearing stories. Obviously, you're around aviation, and you kind of just think, "Hey, I'm going to be a pilot too." But what, how old were you when you got into it? How did you start getting into it? Kind of explain a little bit about that. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, my first flight in a plane. I think I was eight years old. Oh, cool! And uh, I remember. <laughs> Actually terrified. You know, I was flying <laughs> with my uncle, and uh, the stalwarting horn goes off, and things like that on landing. And I just remember just you know being, wow, this is uh, this is crazy. Uh, but at the same point, just this this excitement uh, about it, just this idea of of 
flying yourself up in, in the in the sky and seeing the world from a different perspective. And I think though those moments were were inspirational. And um, you know, didn't see my my cousin uh, progress in the military, and and uh, he went to Embry Riddle in Arizona, and just uh, just continuing to to hear stories. I, I wasn't really wasn't one of those guys that was at the airport every weekend as a kid. Uh, I just heard a lot of stories, and my, my family would fly in. Uh, my my uncle would fly in, and then I would see them different places um, growing up. But it was yeah, it's kind of in a different deal. Like I, I it was always a dream. It was always a plan, but it wasn't something in high school. Uh, living out in uh, Santa Cruz, California, I didn't go flying. I didn't have any friends in that at that time who flew. Um, but it was still this plan that I had to, uh, I always figured I'd be military or commercial. Um, and so that was kind of on aviation side, that was kind of my, uh, my background, just reading, uh, stories about aviators and, and, uh, hearing stories of my family. Yeah. How old were you when you started actually flying? Uh, I started flying at 19 years old okay. up in uh, Watsonville, California. And, um, uh, that was, uh, yeah, I, I, my, my story kind of takes a bit of a turn uh as a 16 year old because really all of a sudden um my reason for flying changed and i think that's a big part of my story and the reason that i've i've really took on especially the roles that i've had over the last 15 18 years in aviation um was based on a big life change for me and uh, and, uh changing my focus on aviation from from military commercial and what that looks like to to actually using aviation as a tool to save lives and, and to uh, to uh, share God's love with people in remote areas. And I think that uh, through physical, tangible uh, things that we do. And so I think that that, that really changed my, my life and, and helped really uh, shape my what I've become as an aviator over the years. So before you were 16, the goal was military or airline pilot or any kind of commercial pilot kind of um, to go transport people to make money, you know, fly the airlines and that kind of stuff. And then when you turned 16, you had a new goal and that was to kind of figure out how you can use it as a tool to help people. Yeah. Yeah. So initially it was like, how can I go see the world? I always have had an adventurous spirit. And so it was like aviation. I can fly around the world. I can make money, have free, free schedules. And, you know, yeah. if, if I go that route and if I do military, I can do the same thing just differently, go see the world and uh, uh, serve our country. And then, um, you know, as a kid going back farther, my, my, uh, my father was a minister and, and, uh, so as a 13 year old, we moved to Santa Cruz and he runs this, uh, this, we call it a homeless mission or a place, a church basically that also feeds, uh, the homeless people and, and gives them clothes. And so I'm, I'm there, I am as a teenager working with my family in this home, helping feed the homeless and, and having this opportunity to give, to give back to people that don't have anything and to give them food and clothes and, um, things like that. And then I went to uh, Mexico uh, with my church youth group as a 16 year old and uh, had a chance to see another culture and really see uh, how most of the world lives really. And, and just how blessed we are in the USA and uh, seeing a whole nother side of people living in, in cardboard boxes and, and uh, going, wow, you know, I can, I can help someone as well. And then having a moment down there, I was uh, reading some scripture in the morning one one morning, and uh, I just felt God speak to me, and it was uh, hasn't happened since like that. But <laughs> he just said, "Hey, I, what I heard was, uh, Mark, I want you to use your passion for people and aviation to share my love in a remote part of the world." 
And uh, that moment was a life changer for me. And uh, I yeah. came back as a 16-year-old, and it was like, okay, uh, it's not military, it's not commercial, it's, uh, it's going to some remote area. And uh, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, what do I have to do to prepare for that? And that adds a whole other element, you know, when yeah. you talk about being able to fix your airplane now if you're the only one there and, and what kind of training you get. So that's when I say my whole life shifted and all of a sudden aviation was now a tool to do something good for, for others that, that didn't have access or hope to, to things that we all have. Uh, and that, that was a, a huge life changer for me. And uh, then I had a chance to go to Papua New Guinea in 1994 as a 19-year-old and for the first time and see this country. You know, most people don't even know where Papua New Guinea is. Right. Um, it's above Australia. Uh, it's in the South Pacific. And, and going to this place, it has, it has a fifth of the world's languages, uh, 820 languages. And um, see, so you're going to these remote areas. And uh, for me, seeing uh, a need there uh, that was just so amazing um, and heartbreaking at the same time, you know, this, this idea that people don't have access to medicine, they don't have access to healthcare um, uh, that we take for granted here in the States and how right. an airplane, an airplane could be used to, to offer so much and to, to make a huge difference. So I think that, that trip also was just an incredible uh, trip for me uh, personally. And that really helped the focus. That's uh, I went over there with a friend and that's really where the, the dream uh, we, we came back and that's where the dream for Samaritan aviation came from. And so as a 19 year old, we had this dream and now it was like, okay, what do we have to do to, to right. get there? And so that's, that again, once, once we had this dream that shaped, you know, all of the, everything from there on what the training I needed, which airplanes I was going to fly. Uh, I, and I ended up going to aviation mechanic school, which is not something I, I'm not, I wasn't mechanical growing up. I, I wasn't, uh, I, I think I changed my oil one time in my car yeah. <laughs> before showing up at, a, yeah. at AMP school. And, and so that's a whole other side of aviation, but the, a critical side when you're talking about uh, flying in a place like Papua New Guinea. And uh, so that, that was another part that completely uh, was a shift for me aviation wise. Uh, All of a sudden it was more than just flying an airplane. It was, it was getting to know an airplane in a whole different way. And, uh, and, uh, so that, that was a big change for me as well. Yeah. Well, talk about the training, talk about how you kind of had that change and change in mindset of how you wanted to use aviation and how you wanted to become a pilot and further your career. But you had very specific training that you need to go to, to do that. And I know there's some places I grew up in Charlotte and there's uh, I don't know if you're, you might be familiar with jars. Jars yeah. is uh, located in Waxhaw, which was about 20 minutes south. And I know a lot of people, I think it's AIAMers, they go there as well. And they go there to learn and they kind of do a crash course on how to teach people how to fly in remote areas. Did you go to a course like that or did you kind of, are there other courses that you can go to to get that type of training that you needed? Yeah, it was uh, for me, I it was a little different, um, you know, back then. Um, it's, a, it's interesting now, you know, all, all the organizations work a lot closer together now than they used to, um, 25 years ago. And so in, in those, in that time, it was like, for me, the dream was, okay, it was Papua New Guinea. Uh, the dream for Samaritan was always seaplane. So there was, um, very limited seaplane opportunities for training. And there's yeah. still, nobody's training seaplanes, uh, at least on the West coast, there might be some small group that's doing it, but not, not real training, more like getting your rating. You know, you have six hours and now you have your float rating, which Good luck. really doesn't, doesn't mean <laughs> <Enjoy>. anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just means you uh, can go uh, 
get in trouble. But I think the so that was a bit of a specific goal. This the seaplane side, and then all of a sudden the all of a sudden, knowing that I had to fix my own airplane in a place like Papua New Guinea was was all of a sudden I not only needed a and P school and that was a two two year process, but I also needed time in the in the field. Just having all that theory doesn't necessarily translate. Especially for someone like me who wasn't, uh, didn't have a mechanical background, right. I didn't work on my car on the weekends. So I ended up working as six years in in as an air, aircraft mechanic in at Santa Monica Airport here in California and over at Palomar, and uh, just getting that experience of uh, being forced to do hundred hours and oil changes and and annual inspections and all of those things, and and uh, that was really the foundation on the maintenance side, and then on the flying side. You know, we had some uh, some different people that came alongside of us. We had an aviation advisor, and I mean, in 2000, so going back a little bit, a 94 trip to New Guinea, 2000, we incorporate uh, Samaritan Aviation, and so um, as a nonprofit, so through all of those, so starting the training uh, in that time, and then continuing the training, um, getting my uh, I got my private, you know, up in, uh, down in San Diego, my instrument and. Uh, and Carlsbad and my commercial Santa Monica and my seaplane in Alaska. So I, I kind of uh, <laughs> took, the way long, yeah. took the long route. And, uh, you know, as an aircraft mechanic, I was able to work on people's airplanes and then they would let me fly uh, for the cost of fuel, which helped knock my uh, the cost of training down. Uh, it also took a lot longer. But that was kind of my, my, uh, my road. And then, um, yeah, so then – it's like, how do I get seaplane training? And then I had an opportunity to fly a, a float plane down from Alaska to California. Oh, dang. Uh, this company was like every half a year, they'd bring, bring their planes down. And once it got too cold in Alaska, they'd bring the float planes down to California and then they'd <laughs> train all winter flying back up. And so they had this amazing deal where if I paid for fuel, uh, they'd have an instructor in the plane and I could fly the plane down, get hours and, and, uh, you know, 25 hours for 1500 bucks or something yeah. in a float plane is a uh, pretty it's incredible. A so absolutely. So that's kind of how I started with the, with the float training. And then I also did several, uh, I found some bush pilots from Bolivia that had flown in, uh, seaplanes. And I went and did some specific training in a super cub up in Idaho backcountry and the water and the rivers up there. And also, um, our aviation advisor, uh, Bruce Johnson, um, you know, he, he is 40 year float pilot in Alaska. So he did a lot of the, of the training with me in the, in the States and different areas as well. So that was kind of my more specific training. Some of the other things that we did too, in the early days, we weren't in Papua New Guinea. And that's a whole nother story is how we got over there uh, on how we got over there. But I, we were flying to Mexico and we'd fly doctors, uh, volunteer doctors. And float planes or normal planes? No, this was all, this was all wheel planes. Yeah. We, we, you know, we, we got our first airplane in 2002 as a 182. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were flying down to Mexico to, to uh, do something uh, and to gain experience. So that was another way that I was able to gain experience uh, in international uh, going, you know, border crossings and working internationally and flying volunteers and what it takes to do that and, and organizing all of those trips. And so that was how I kept kind of building my, my time. I have an interesting, I've never actually worked, uh, I mean, I've worked for Samaritan Aviation since 2000, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never held a job outside of Samaritan Aviation <laughs> as far as that's aviation funny. jobs. So uh, that's a very unusual. Uh, lots of me- a couple of mechanic jobs before that, but no flight flying jobs. So, yeah, that's rare. Yeah, it's a very rare, rare journey. And then um, you know, 
as far as you look at, then you look at, uh, you know, I was over all the aviation side of, of Samaritan and trying to say, okay, you know, Papua New Guinea, you have this area, there's a 700 mile river. There's 220,000 people living on this river. And, and the closest hospital for most of those people is one to three days away. Oh my gosh. And there's no wheel runway. There's maybe two wheel runways along this 700 mile river. And so now you're going, okay, what airplane do we need to take, you know? Um, and, and so that's a whole nother conversation as you're trying to figure out, um, you know, we don't think about fuel availability in America, for example, you no. know, for Avgas, uh, <laughs> Avgas in Indonesia, for example, is non-existent for today. Can't find it. So everybody's had to go fly a jet, um, down to the turbine, turbine aircraft. And so, you know, does what aircraft is viable? And then, uh, if we're doing medical, what is going to work on the medical side and what's the, What's your flight profile? And you start thinking about all of those things, maintenance, flight, flight training. And um, that's a whole other side of what we do at, at Papua New Guinea that's uh, very, very interesting that uh, most of us um, don't think have to think about as well. Um, but for, for me, um, you know, going back, a big part of a big part of it was uh, was trying to get the word out, you know, uh, tell a story about why. Uh, someone should help us get a float plane to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> what would, what <laughs> would that, you say? How did you get that? What story did you tell? You know, I kept, I told stories that I'd heard over in Papua New Guinea myself when I went and visited, <clears throat> I went back in 2001 and 2003, 2005 and, and uh, hearing story after story of people dying, yeah. trying to get to that one hospital and, uh, and people not getting medical supplies you know, for six months, they'd be out of medical supplies because there's no way to get the medicine from the, where the, the medicine, medicine storehouse was, which mm-hmm. is the same place the hospital is, which is on the north coast of Papua New Guinea in a little town called Weewak. How do you get the, that medicine out to the river and how do you get those people from the river back to the hospital? And those two things weren't happening. And so I just kept telling the story and, and being an advocate uh, for these, these people, you know, that, that were dying. Uh, trying to get, if you can imagine, you know, you you have a snake bite where you have about eight hours to live or you have a obstructed birth or you you have a tribal fight because there's still a lot of tribal fighting over there and yeah. people spearing each other. And, and how are you going to make it three days to get to the nearest hospital down in a canoe, trying to get to the one or two roads that are along the river and then trying to find a vehicle to get you in the three or four hours uh, to the hospital um, when you have no money, you're living on in shacks. There, you know, not shacks in the sense of uh, bush houses, really, uh, that you've made out of out of uh, the trees around you. And you're fishing every morning. There's no electricity. There's no roads. Uh, there's no modern conveniences of any kind. And you're paddling a canoe around that you cut out with a with an axe from a tree. <laughs> and that's your life every day. And and um, you know, how do you get to that hospital when you need help? Uh, which is quite frequently because, you know, 98% of the people have malaria and, and, uh, the, the amount of disease and sickness in these areas is just, uh, seems to, to go on and on. And so, um, I told that story yeah. to anyone that would listen, my buddy and I, we went around America and we told our wives, um, you know, kind of a funny story is, uh, in 2000, we, we, uh, the four of us, my friend, his wife and and my wife and I, we stood in front of someone else's airplane in uh, San Diego, California, at the airport there. And, and we made this little card that we mailed out to 330 people. And we said, we have this dream. 
and uh, we'd love you to help us. And, and uh, you know, we fully expected all of this money to come in. And I think we raised about $330 <laughs> out of that big mail out. <laughs> not, en- we'd made a- <laughs> not enough for an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> not enough for a, yeah. for a tank of gas, you know. But we, uh, we had put a stake in the ground and we'd shared our dream. And, and uh, we believed that that was uh, what, you know, for us, it's, it we're a Christian organization. We felt like it was what God had called us to do and, and that there was, uh, there was a reason for that. So we kept sharing that story and then we kept sharing the story of people dying and, and why people in America should care about someone who's 10,000 miles away. Yeah. And, uh, cause they deserve a chance too, that, that we all have value. And I think that it took 10 years, you know, it was a lot of work and a lot of, um, of tenacity. And, uh, we bought an old project airplane, uh, out of Hawaii float plane in 2006. It took two years to, to refurb it and, I did a lot of that work as well and, and getting this plane flying. And then uh, we took it on a tour around America in 2008 and nine, and then uh, shipped it over uh, December 2009. And I ended up putting it back together with a bag of tools and the capital in uh, February 2010 and flew it into to WeWAC, which is about 500 miles away, uh, which is where we work today. And I think, um, you know, just going back, I think of back to all that preparation time, you know, um, it took 10 years to get over there and it, it took way longer than we ever dreamed. It was, it was a bit harder. I don't recommend people to start organizations, especially aviation organizations. <laughs> uh, very, it's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and most people are, are, you know, looking to give money to start up aviation organizations. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, hard. It's a hard sell. That's for sure. But I'm, I'm glad it all worked out and I'm glad, I know it took longer than you thought, but you were able to, to put this dream and mission together and you, you have some, I mean, it sounds like some crazy stories to tell from there. What, I guess one thing I wanted to ask about the training that I didn't ask yet was you talked about kind of getting your seaplane rating and how you, most people just get six hours and they're sent on their way. And it's more of just, uh, Hey, I have a seaplane rating. It's not like, Hey, I go fly seaplanes. What was, um, how many hours and what was the training like to make yourself comfortable to go fly seaplanes all the time? Or how much did it take for the general public? to kind of have more awareness around that about how just because you have a seaplane rating it still doesn't mean that you're proficient and you should be flying seaplanes all the time if that makes sense yeah i mean it's you know the, the reality is is that you know when i had my when i got even though i flew down from alaska and you know had some pretty harrowing experiences on that flight um you know i, I didn't mean i knew how to fly a seaplane i think <laughs> the, the reality is is now you can go land on a lake somewhere and not kill yourself you know yeah. Um, but that's not real seaplane flying from the sense of what we do, um, in, in New Guinea. I mean, um, so I think the, the reality is I did, I I could have used more training. I think I had about 130 hours of seaplane, which, you know, you can't even, most people in Alaska want you to have a thousand hours of of seaplane just to get a job up there for most of the lodges. But, um, but for us, it was like, you know, we, I got what I could. Uh, I did the best I could. And then I also had our aviation advisor, Bruce Johnson was his, is his name. And he, he's, uh, got, you know, 40 years in Alaska, in Alaska and helped, helped start the Kodiak quest Kodiak project. And, you know, he was over there for the first uh, month with me. Um, you know, so I had, I had a lot of uh, really good uh, mentor, uh, mentors and, and, uh, him especially, uh, to kind of, to walk me through, obviously that, 
based on what we do in New Guinea, that was uh, I could have used Bruce for about a year <laughs> over there. But uh, you know, after a month, uh, we managed to make it work. But uh, you know, the thing about what we do too, it, it's you know, you have different seaplane uh, places around in America. They're they're pretty, most of them are pretty uh, wide open. You know, and you're talking Papua New Guinea. You're you're going out um, in this area that we're at. There's nothing else out there. So if you have an accident or you mess up, you know, you're not you're not getting home for a while. Yeah, it could be a couple of days. Um, and so when I went out there by myself for the first time, I, I was the only float plane in the country. Uh, I was the only guy that could work on it, fly it. And so, and I'm going into a place, a lot of places no one has ever been. I think that part was, was, uh, probably the most stressful of it all. And knowing if I had made one bad decision, uh, that, that, uh, it could be catastrophe, not just for me personally on a life and death situation, but also for the whole organization and for, for the people that had given, uh, you know, to support us and to help yeah. us get over there all these years. So that, that pressure probably for me was even more than anything else. But, and then you're flying and you're making these decisions in these areas that you don't really know anything about. And, and you're looking down the river is the color of chocolate and you can't see below it. Um, on the Sepik river, for example, this river, we closest thing you'd say is the size of the Mississippi, the, the main Sepik, which is the 700 mile river I mentioned. Uh, but it, it can rise and fall up to 20 feet in a week. Oh, dang. So if you can imagine a river that's 3,000 feet wide in some places, you know, uh, you come the next week and all of a sudden it's 1,000 uh, foot wide in the same place where it was 3,000 foot wide yeah. a week Jeez. before. And there's big sandbars sticking up, you know, and sandbars move all the time. And then um, it's fed by 400 inches of rain. So when that river's coming up, now you have 100 foot logs floating down the river and roots sticking up 50 feet in the air and, and uh, just debris, you know, uh, and so now you're trying to make a decision on how, how do I safely get down? Um, usually you can get down in, you know, currents. Once you figure out how, to, how the currents all work, you can find a, a clean area. But then it's like a lot of times where you're having to dock is on the side. So you have to kind of make your way through all the debris on the <laughs> river to get to the side. And then there's no docks, you know, so, so this idea where you're parking with a fast flowing river between two palm trees and, and sometimes the the wing of your airplane's you know over the bank and you can step right off. And other times that, that same bank is twenty feet above you. Oh my gosh! And and uh, dealing with uh, villagers who've never seen an airplane before and they're the ones helping you. Yeah, you know, they're like what? When you come up the dock, they're grabbing the plane. You're trying to talk to them. So you know there was a whole side of that that I had to learn the language over there. The trade language is talk pisin, and that's what we speak. And I had to learn that language. I had to learn the culture. And so there was a whole side of what we do that had nothing to do with flying an airplane that I had to figure yeah. out. And then docking the airplane, which is in seaplanes, especially in that environment, and, and undocking. You know, you're, you're relying on them to get the plane off the bank of the river, and, hope, and you have to explain everything really well. You know, I, I remember one time I didn't explain things very well. <laughs> and uh, I remember, I'll never forget, I was uh, on the side of this, this river, and, and uh, I've got the patient in the plane. This yeah. guy, I think he had been stabbed or something. And I'm, I'm around. I got the doctor in there. We always fly with the nurse and medical professional. And I'm, I'm on the other side of the plane, on the, uh, so the pilot side on the left side, the, the older 206s that we used. The first one we had didn't have a right-hand door, so I was kind of – on the other side, I had to walk around a rope on the front of the plane. People can visualize that as a cable yeah. that goes across the front of the prop. And 
So I'm standing on the uh, the right side, far back, holding like 40 feet of rope, and then the the villagers just push me out into the river. And I remember <laughs> standing there, like, what do I do now? You know, uh, the, the the plane's like we're we're going. Oh, we actually, we're in an eddy, so we're going upstream. There's like <laughs> fishing, uh, like fishing nets, the poles sticking up really high, and. I remember just like going, wow, this, uh, I, nothing I trained for prepared me for this no, moment. No, not at all. <laughs> I didn't know if I needed to jump off or, or uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things I should have done differently. But I ended up just spinning around in circles yelling, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what <laughs> and, do I do? Uh, what do I do? So anyway, those are things that you, uh, thankfully, we, we managed to get out of there without damaging anything. But uh, there's a lot of things that we do on that end that, uh, that I had to do that, Nothing I'd trained for prepared me for that kind of environment. But the goal, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, there's different organizations. Every organization pretty much has has a uh, a place where you go to do a training. We call it an assessment, really. Uh, there's a lot of schools now that that uh, do training specific for bush flying. And then uh, for, for all of our pilots that join us, we have them do an assessment. There's some different schools uh, that we work with, and and uh, we've worked with JARS as well to do the, uh, the assessments. And so you're trying to figure out, you know, can, can this guy fly an airplane proficiently? And it's not about flying too. It's about, um, making good decisions. You know, uh, yeah. the one thing about our flying is, uh, you know, you're not just, you're up above, you're trying to make a good decision. You're looking for, you know, uh, fishing nets, crocodiles, people in canoes, the water levels, the currents, the winds, sandbars that are moving in the water you can't see through. So you have to make a lot of decisions. Uh, then where do you dock the plane? How do you get in and how do you get out? And now you're adding a, a life and death situation to that where now you have a mother who's, who's bleeding out or you have um, uh, someone who's unconscious that's uh, having seizures or whatever it is. Uh, and, and you're trying to, to safely get them into the plane, deal with that medical emergency and think through all the flying side as well. And that's a whole nother side of what we do that that is a different level you know now you're dealing with uh, i've had people die in the airplane now you're dealing with people that have had limbs chopped off for example and you're dealing with the whole blood side and some people don't do well with that and, no. uh, and then you're dealing with moms you know in labor yelling and screaming with you know in a 206 we fly cessna 206 is uh, you know you're you're sitting a, a foot away from the patient yeah. flying the airplanes so you're right in there in the middle of all of this and you're trying and you have the bad weather and you have all of the obstacles and everything else. And so there's a whole side of what we do that, that is, uh, is, is much more than just getting an airplane off the ground from point A to point B. And that, that, that's a hard, hardest part, I think. How did you even prepare yourself for this? Like, I understand, like you talked about how you went flying and the situation, like you did the, the flight, the float planes back out the 25 hours and some extra flying there. And obviously the situation is so much different down in Papua New Guinea than it is in flying a float plane in Alaska or California or anywhere. How did you prepare yourself for even the, the flying part of it? And then also, how did the, the local government kind of react to this? Because I know from other people that I've talked to, I have a friend, like I mentioned earlier, I don't know if I said it on a recording, but a friend that flew for MAF. And there's a lot of dirty government and there's a lot of, not, I don't necessarily bribery, but there's a lot of control over what happens in their, their country and kind of talk a little bit about both those aspects of how you dealt with those and how you prepared for the locals and everything that was involved with that. Yeah, no, I know. You know, it's some of this, this stuff is uh, the flight stuff. You can you can train for 
for flying. I couldn't really train for Papua New Guinea as far as the the actual environment I flew in because it's hot. It's density mm-hmm. altitudes probably thirty eight hundred feet every day. Not climbing uh, very well some days. <laughs> yeah, even though you're on sea level. Yeah, and uh, it's always hot, sweaty, no wind most of it, and and this river that's rising and falling and changing. Every flight is different. Every landing's different. There's no docks. You can't. It's very hard to train for some of that. Uh, some of that you just have to, to adapt, uh, most of that. Then you have to add this culture that is uh, totally different. It's yeah. not a Western culture. They don't think the way we do. Uh, they don't look at life the same way. Even decisions that are made um, are much more made uh, community-wise versus individual-wise. And so as you're working through things, you're dealing with communities more than individuals a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, an individual can control a whole community. So you're, you're kind of um, – you know, with the chief system, you're you're dealing with with uh, with one voice sometimes, and the rest of the village doesn't have a voice, even though it impacts the whole village. Uh, and then you're dealing with the government side of things, and for us, um, that's been a huge part. I mean, you know, we don't charge for any of the flights that we do, um, and uh, and so in this area, you know, to be able to offer a free service to these people takes a lot of money, yeah. obviously. And and we never expected the U.S. supporters. We we. We have amazing U.S. supporters and foundations and, and churches over here that support us. But we always knew that was never going to be enough. And, and really, we didn't want it to be uh, all funded by America. We felt like the Papua New Guinean government needed to have a, have a stake in it. And mm-hmm. so from day one, we, we told them, you know, look, we will get the airplane here. We're going to we believe we can have a solution to a major issue with health service or lack of health service delivery. We believe we can fly medical emergencies save a lot of lives we believe we can get medical supplies out we believe we can help with disasters and sickness outbreaks and and all of the things that you're struggling with uh, but we we have to have funding to do that you know and so um, that was a big part of our our talks with the government beforehand our goal was always to uh, to be part of that what they were doing as well it was yeah. like, okay, what are you guys doing and let's let's make it better versus let's uh, let's go do our own little thing on the side here and compete with you or duplicate right. what you're trying to do. So that I think from the get go, that attitude had a huge impact on our relationships with the government. And to be honest, I've never dealt with the, with the, you mentioned the kind of the dirty side of that government and Papua New Guinea is, you know, corruption wise is ranked, ranked internationally pretty high on the corruption <laughs> side. I figured. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, for me personally, I've never had to deal with that. I've been very upfront never had uh, to deal with any bribery. That's good. Uh, the, the reality is we're saving lives. We're not charging for it and we're not making any money. Okay. You know, no one's getting rich here. And I think uh, they saw the heart of that. They, they saw us come in. Um, and so today the Papua New Guinean government supports us 40% of all of our flight operations. And so that's uh, amazing. probably the only, one of the only groups in the country that that's happening with, which is amazing. Um, it's unbelievable. Um, they've seen the difference that we've made in the last 10 years now. Um, they've seen the lives saved. And, and, uh, and so now they're, they've, and from the day one, literally six months after I got there, the prime minister came in person and gave, gave us a check, uh, oh, wow. gave, gave me a check and said, we want to support Samaritan, you know? So those, those things uh, from the get go have been huge and, and, uh, have really shaped the, the, uh, the partnership that we have with the government. So yeah. we really considered a partnership, but that's been an amazing and really the, probably one of the main reasons we've been successful 
because uh, it is a lot of money to do what we do with, with aviation. And when you're not charging, there's no money coming back the other way. So uh, it takes it takes everybody pitching in, and I think that's been huge. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the daily lifestyle of you or one of your pilots out there, like what's a typical day or even what's the craziest day you've ever had in a way and kind of just so someone listening now can kind of get a little bit of an understanding of the daily struggle of what you go through or just what it takes to be a pilot out in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. You know, the amazing thing about what we do and part of exciting for me is never, no two days are ever the same, you know um, it's, it's, you can't, schedule emergencies. So, um, we're on call seven days a week for emergency yeah. flights and, and, uh, we cover the river. Uh, we, and so, uh, sometimes, you know, I've had up to five flights in a day before, uh, other times you'll go a couple days and not have an emergency flight. Um, and then we'll have medical su- supply flights. And, um, just to give you a little bit of history, we've been, a, we've done about 1500 flights now with the oh, seaplane. Wow. Uh, no, no. And that's leaving New Guinea. That's leaving WeWAC. That's not 1500 landings. We've, so a lot of times we'll, we'll land four or five times, but 1500 flights leaving New Guinea, we've delivered 166,000 pounds of medical supplies to, to remote aid posts along the river. And, uh, we've saved, you know, thousands of lives through emergency flights and through, uh, through disaster reliefs. When you're talking about, uh, stopping, co- you know, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, three months before we arrived, there was a cholera outbreak. In the mm-hmm. Pacific. and um, we we had uh, you know three thousand people died, oh, and wow. that was uh, right on the lower river, and that was three months before we we arrived. And since we've been there, we've never had more than uh, three people die from an outbreak like that. And so we've been able to respond quickly to disasters and save lives that way. The medicines were sitting six months before. Now we can get them out the same week, the same day, right to the clinic. So instead of taking three days to go up by by river, by boat, and have all of the temptations to sell medicine or, or things like that, or they get wet from the rainstorms. Uh, we're able to get medicine right to the clinic and have full accountability. Um, and then obviously, you know, all of the, the emergency flights being on call seven days a week. And so all of our days are different. Um, and so a lot of our pilots, you know, all of our pilots right now are mechanics. We have three pilots in New Guinea right now, another pilot that's hoping to get over there in the next six months. All of our pilots are mechanics as well as as pilots, and so they do both. Um, and we also have a, a, a team that goes into the hospital, so we bring these patients out. So if you can imagine, you're living on the side of the 700 mile river, uh, you have a a major emergency, and uh, you get picked up by a, a plane. You've never been in an airplane, you've <laughs> never even seen an airplane, yeah. and then now you're flying uh, to this hospital that is on the ocean. So you've never seen an ocean. You've never seen a car, electricity, stuff, stuff like that. So a lot of the patients that we fly in are dealing with that. So they're dealing with this whole uh, mind shift of, of what life is uh, and what is out there, and they're dealing with emergency. And so we have a team that goes in every day and, and uh, prays with them and, and gives them clothes and feeds them and uh, all of that every day. And so a lot of times we have about an average of eight to 12 patients that are in the hospital kind of rotating in and, you know, as they go, some are there a long time, some are there a couple of days, depending on how sick they are. Uh, if they have babies, some of them, you know, the babies are in the nursery for a while trying to, trying to recover. And, um, so, so there's a whole team. So the pilots are involved with that. So it's more for us, it's more than just flying. So your day could, could, could 
be going to the hospital and just loving on people. Yeah. Um, and then you go on a flight and save a life or you've got a team that go, that needs to go out or you're flying vaccines out to a team uh, because the refrigeration system out in the remote areas doesn't exist. And so you're flying vaccines and ice and uh, teams out to do outreaches that way or to do training. And so for us, our pilots, every day's every day's different. I mean, I could, and some days are, are really amazing. I, I'll tell you a couple different stories. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I, I remember the day that uh, I flew out and I landed at this along the, along the side of the Sepik River, and they brought this this lady with uh, breech birth. She she had breech birth, and so we get her in the plane, and I'm getting ready to push off the river, and this other lady shows up in a canoe, and she's got a breech birth. Uh, it just happens to show up when the plane's there, so they load her in the plane, and now I've got two pregnant women, and uh, you know, a couple caregivers, and we take off for for Weewack. It's about a forty minute flight. We land there, you know, get them, rush them into the into, into emergency surgery and everything. And uh, these both of these women had twins. Oh, my gosh. And, and it was crazy coming in the next day. And, and uh, both the women survived. Both the twins survived. And so for like one flight, we saved six, six lives. That's crazy. You know, and so you have you have those amazing high moments. And then you'll have the time, you know. Like last, like a few months ago, when I'm flying back and I'm 12 minutes from Weewak, and this four-year-old girl dies in the plane. Oh no! And and you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with that side of it, and the family's freaking out. You know, in in this culture, um, when someone dies, it's you know obviously it's traumatic in any culture, but wailing and screaming is a very it's very demonstrative uh, of grief, and so. I'm in the plane and this is all happening while I'm trying to fly the plane and, and uh, you know, the parents really going uh, freaking out in the back and trying to talk to them, you know, at the same time um, trying to get the plane flown safely and get to where we're going, knowing that this, this little girl had passed and, uh, and also knowing that I had another flight uh, right out, right, right after that, where, where someone, some, there'd been a domestic violence case and uh some lady had her achilles attendant cut with a machete and so now i have got that to go deal with Jeez. anyway i'm you know sometimes it's uh, these there's it's hard you know what we do um it's very traumatic and uh, so you kind of have a lot of a lot of highs and, and some very deep lows i, I you know 93 percent of all the patients we fly and live yeah so that's uh you know that's a good percentage but that seven percent that doesn't make it is very hard on our pilots. It's very hard on our families, um, uh, to, to work through that. You know, that's another part that you don't, how do you train no, for that? Well, that's what I was you're training, to be a, <laughs> training to be a pilot. And yeah. now you're dealing with, with people with death. How do you deal with, with that in the plane? How do you deal with that situation that you're in? How do, I mean, obviously like preparation, you can't, but like in the moment you're, you want to, you, you need to keep, Sure that mean to make sure that these people stay alive. You need to make sure you land this plane safely. And obviously you're distracted. They've never been on a plane before. They don't know what's going on. They're totally out of their comfort zone. You kind of have no idea how they're going to react or what they could do. So like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. In that situation, it was hard because I, I had gone into this area that I hadn't really been in before. And I, I knew it was tight as far as around a corner takeoff. There's two corners and then there was trees and I, I couldn't take a nurse in there. To this particular spot and um normally we have a nurse but i wasn't sure i could get out you know yeah. uh, if i took a nurse weight wise so i had to to uh to not have a nurse and so it was just me the mom and dad and this 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 little baby and um 
it was hard, you know, the guys grabbing my shoulders and uh, yelling and screaming. And I'm, you know, thankfully I know the language. So I'm able to talk back, back to him and let him know what's going on. Uh, he just wants to go back home, you know, and in, in, in this culture, you always, the, the bodies, uh, if you die, you always bring the body back to the village. That's a cultural thing. So he knows he's from a remote mountain area. He had to hike down almost a day to get to where he could meet the airplane, mm -hmm. you know, with his little daughter. So he's trying to just get back home. I know I don't have enough fuel because I didn't take a whole lot of fuel knowing I needed to be light to get off the water. I had enough to get to WeeWack and I had my reserves, but there was, we were almost to, we were 12 minutes from, from landing. There was no way I could just turn around and go back right. to the river. I have no way to get fuel out in the remote areas. How did you explain fuel. that to him? Did he understand that? Uh, he, he did. I think, uh, you know, just explaining to him that I would make sure he gets back yeah. to the village. You know, that was the main thing for him. He needed to hear that. Um, and, uh, that we just had to, 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 you know, calm down yeah. and uh, finish this flight. And, and, um, you know, and it's, and it's gut wrenching at the same time. I have three kids, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, that the guy's just gone, you know, his heart's been ripped out and, uh, he's sitting there holding his daughter. And, uh, anyway, it just, yeah, those, those, those are things you, you'll never prepare yourself for and you'll never know how you react until you're in it either that's the other part of that um um and a lot of those things impact you for a long time not just for that moment uh, bet, yeah. that you deal with later uh you know it's a post-traumatic syndrome side of what we do um but i think you know that's the that's why it's so important for us for our pilots to know the language the culture that's a huge part of it and being able to talk to them uh, in their language and explain what's going on um uh, but yeah those those are those are those are hard hard situations, but we've had so many, you know, I'll, I'll tell you another story. Uh, I was just about a, two months ago, two and a half months ago, I was over and, uh, we just got, we just came back from New Guinea a couple months ago, my family and I, and, uh, and so I was over there and the U S ambassador came out from, uh, from the U S she was the ambassador to Papua New Guinea. And she mm -hmm. came out to, uh, we launched a new airplane this year in New Guinea. It's always a big cultural thing to have a huge celebration when you, when you do anything like that and you bring all these dignitaries out. So uh, the ambassador came and, and we went out to this uh, village, you know, and I, I'd, I'd sent word to this village. Hey, I've got, I'm coming out and I have this American uh, VIP that wants to see your village and the aid posts that we work out there. And so we land on the side of this river and they had this whole uh, singing group and this culture, uh, they call it a sing sing and, and they're all, you know, it's, 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 it's back in the old days uh, with all, it's the same ceremonies they've done for hundreds of years and, and they're dressed up and painted up and, and dancing and beating drums and, and, uh, in their grass skirts and, and everything. And so they're, they bring us, you know, off the plane and they're throwing flowers and putting necklaces on us. And it's this whole ceremony that's just for, usually, you know, for honored guests only, this is what you do for really important people. So yeah. I've got this ambassador and I've been working in this village for 10 years and um, we have this new airplane. So there was a lot of uh, events. They were very excited to have us there. So we, they usher us over and we sit out on these, on these chairs in the middle of the village and everyone's crowded around several hundred people around us. And, and uh, you know, in Papua New Guinea, it's all about speeches. And so every I have to make a speech and then, you know, the ambassador makes a speech and the other, uh, we had a provincial administrator with us and my wife. And so, you know, everybody's making speeches and then, and then the, the village leader gets up and 
for the next 45 minutes was amazing. They start pulling out people out of the, uh, out of the crowd of lives that we'd saved. No way. And, and the first, the first uh, family they brought out was this lady, Antonia. She's the first patient we'd ever actually flown with the plane. And I thought I was looking at this lady, you know, it'd been nine years. And, uh, since we flew her out and her son is sitting there and they had named her son uh, after me, which was oh, a huge so honor. Cool. So yeah. th- it was baby Mark all these years. And now this nine year old standing <laughs> in front of me and, uh, and this mom and a dad. And, and, uh, and I thought back, you know, in that moment to, you know, we talked earlier about how it took 10 years to get to New Guinea and how I told all, how we told all these people in America, we can save lives. We can do this. And here I am after being over in New Guinea almost nine and a half years at this point. And there's this first patient we've ever flown in. This is kind of like this beacon, you know, this, this place that for me, I've always gone back to, I've never forgot that first flight flying this lady. She had been unconscious for three days, picked her up and obstructed birth, brought her in the emergency surgery. And then going in and seeing her and this little baby boy with my family back in 2010, and then now fast forwarding 2019 and seeing this lady and her son and her husband again in this community. And then they just kept bringing people, you know, this is one community out of the, uh, over 65 different areas that we land in this river. And it's one community. And for about 45 minutes, they just kept bringing people up. Uh, you save this lady. Oh, this lady had a twins. You had breech birth. You flew her out. This, these guys had a tribal fight and these brothers, you know, were fighting and, um, and these, oh, this little kid, he had cerebral malaria. And it just went on and on and on. And it was just an amazing moment of, of for me, just reflection, thankfulness, uh, to just see that one village that we've been able to impact. And, and to use an airplane, to use an avi- aviation as a tool, you know, it's the only thing that will work. And to use a seaplane in this area, it's the only uh, plane that you're going to, uh, in this area, that, that can do what we do. Um, and just to be so thankful uh, for all those people around the world and in the USA specifically that had supported the dream for all those years mm-hmm. and it helped us get over there and helped be part of that. And just for me and my wife, uh, Kirsten to just be just overwhelmed with, with gratitude. And, and also it also reminded us of why we're there, you know, this idea yeah. of providing access and hope, you know, without hope, what do you have? And, and, uh, that's really uh, such a powerful thing. Hope is such a powerful thing. And, and this idea of, I mean, if you've ever been in a place where literally you're three days away from help or your 45 minute flight and what the sound of an airplane must mean to those people when their loved one is dying and you hear the sound of that airplane coming yeah. and it's the sound of hope. And, uh, that's really what Samaritan aviation is today. It's I, we, that's where this idea for me was like hope in action. We're hope in action. Uh, to those people um, that have no hope uh, without us being there. And uh, anyway, I could go on and on and on. No, absolutely. You guys do an amazing thing and it is powerful. It's just great to hear. And it's amazing to hear. I always talk about how there's so many different ways that you can contribute to the aviation community or even use aviation to help change lives. And your story and what Samaritan Aviation has done for community is just amazing. And it's, it, I'm, I'm thankful that you were able to come on and talk. And I do have some more questions for a couple more questions for you as well. But what you guys do is just amazing. And I'm sure that I don't want you to ever think that you're doing isn't making a difference in the world because it clearly is. And like you said, you had 45 minutes of people just saying, you saved my life, you saved my life, you saved my life. And that has to be an unbelievable feeling. 
it's uh it's amazing and i thank you for doing that because not everyone can do that not everyone has the ability or the skills or the want to or even kind of the the drive to do that and that's really cool well it's yeah and to me you know it's like i can't imagine doing anything else you know i I feel so blessed and 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 we have an amazing staff too you know the pilots the three pilots that are over there now and our medical director and their families and our all of our Papua new guinean staff and you know that's it's it's like you said, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has that passion. Uh, but we have just amazing people that have that passion to serve. And I think uh, for me, you know, it's it's about looking around and being part of big, being a part of something that's bigger than yourself, you know. And um, there's so much need everywhere around our, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. And um, we don't have to go to Papua New Guinea to find need, you know. Uh, it's, it's all around us. And we have to be willing to see it and be willing to do something about it. I think uh, for me to be able to do this in an area uh, and for my family to be over there uh, for all these years and to be part of it, uh, working as a family, um, and then to be able to use aviation, which is a passion, mm-hmm. um, to do that. That's even better. And so for me, I just feel like one of the luckiest people alive to be able to use this passion. I'm more excited about doing this today uh, than I've ever been. And, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. We have another airplane. We have two airplanes now in New Guinea. We have another airplane that I'm flying around America right now, raising so cool. awareness and, and also recruiting uh, new pilots uh, to families to join us. And uh, we're looking at expanding to another part of the country uh, here in the next year. And uh, that's a whole other side that's exciting. Uh, there's a whole other side of Papua New Guinea. It's a very second largest island in the world. Most people don't wow. realize that. And the middle of the island has... 14, 10 to 14,000 foot mountains between it. And so on the south side of the island, you, you have the same issues, water everywhere, no way to get to the hospitals, no way to get medicine out. Yeah. And so we're looking at expanding and, and working with the national government right now and our partners to look at starting a whole other base of operations on the other side of the island. So that's exciting for me as I look forward and see the, uh, the fact that we have a proven model now that works and now we can duplicate that in different parts of the country. And that's exciting. That is really exciting. And it's, like I said, it's just a great thing that you guys do. And I guess kind of you saying that you're looking to expand kind of brings me up to one of the questions I was thinking about asking is obviously planes haven't been on these rivers or been in the places that you put them. And a lot of times when you go into a place, it's probably the first time you have ever done it. How do you, I guess like, how do you know it's a safe place to land? How do you even just figure out the, the the climb gradient, how much weight you can be kind of, how do you figure that all out? Because it's not like you have these charts or you have other people that have done this stuff. It's you're kind of out there on your own doing this also. How do you plan for that? Yeah. you. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you lean a lot on your experience now. You yeah. know, I started out very safe, um, making sure I wasn't pushing the envelope too hard. Um, uh, making sure I had enough uh, area to get off the water, to get out, making sure I, you know, I didn't initially go right into the small little rivers that we operate into now. I stayed on the river a lot and in, and in lakes initially to get that experience. I think you get to learn, you also learn the river, you learn currents, you learn uh, where the deepest part of the water is. You also learn uh, where the, where the, you know, the sandbanks underneath the water are, the, uh, sandbars and, and over time now taking photos at low water, taking photos at high water. Uh, obviously you gain that experience too, of knowing yeah. what it looks like, what it looked like when it was low, where the sandbars were. Um, so for me, it's been just a grow growth through, through the years. 
uh, going into a new place is always a, a huge challenge. I mean, you're, I've circled around sometimes for 15 minutes before uh, trying to do a calculation. You know, can I get in? No, getting in is never the, the issue with a float plane. Yeah. Um, you know, you need about 600, 700 feet to land a float plane. Um, and depending on the weight, you need, you know, three times, four times that amount to get off and then to climbing over the trees. They don't climb very well. No. Um, so, <laughs> Small problem, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're terrible, especially there. We fly a Cessna 206. It's not known as being one of the hotshot seaplanes in the world. It's if you go to any type of a discussion board, you'll you'll find that most people are pretty critical of of the Cessna 206 as a float plane. Yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> so you're dealing with that, and um, and also knowing, like I said, no one's coming for you, and uh, and you're jeopardizing the lives of all the other people on the river if you make a mistake. So there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, we take it very careful. Um, you know, it takes a lot of experience before you're allowed to fly by yourself. And even then you're not allowed to go. We don't allow pilots just to go into new areas until yeah. they've been checked out. You know, there's a, there's a couple of us that can actually go anywhere, but yeah, so you, there's, there's procedures you do there, but a lot of it is you're, you're making decisions based on, on experience. Uh, sometimes you'll have some information. I'll talk to a villager and say from a certain place and they'll say, yeah, we have, we have water you can land. And uh, then I'll try to get depth, you know, I'll try to get some, some, some different ideas um, and you know, show up and, you know, it's nothing like that was described. And I've actually <laughs> had to go home before, you know, with oh, a little really? bit of medicine because there's, there's no way I'm going to land there. You know? So, um, yeah, yeah. So you, you have to, and then you have the, you know, as a pilot, you have this pressure of looking down and someone's in the canoe dying, you know, down on the waters and, and you're making a decision on uh, whether you land uh, in a dangerous area um, can you get them out or, or or you're flying back home and you're leaving them knowing they're not going to make it? That, that adds a whole other stressor that you can't yeah. prepare yourself for either. Um, and we deal with that. But, yeah, I think it's a lot of leaning on your experience. Uh, we know what the plane can do, you know, at gross weight. We train for that. Um, we do a lot of modifications on the plane, too, which is not something we talked about. But uh, we change the – we put a – we go from a 520 to a five. 50 engine yeah. continental engines in the Cessna, older Cessnas. Uh, we put an 86 inch prop. So you're adding six inches to the prop, which is that you add that two combination. You're probably 20% better performance. We had a right hand door. We had uh, flint tip tanks on the, on the wings. We had a X, uh, we had a stall kit on the leading edge. Uh, we have a Robertson stall kit on, on the one that we just brought over. Um, we use aeroset floats, which are brand new composite floats, which gives us great performance. So there's a lot of things that we've done to these airplanes too to soup soup them up, I guess you could say, and make them a bit more of a of a hot rod. But uh, yeah, you you have to know your airplane, um, and, and you just have to know. Um, you know, it's not a good feeling when you're clearing trees by 20 feet. I can tell you, no, um, that's that's never a good feeling, and you want to avoid those. And so, uh, making good decisions is, is paramount uh, to uh, safe operations and. We've done over 1,500 flights and haven't had any incidents. That's good. That's amazing. Thank God for that. And, uh, you know, we've learned a lot as we go. We're learning all the time. How do you, how do you draw that line? Obviously, because you know what you're doing is either saving a life or if you can't land there, then that person will end up dying. How do you draw that line to where you're not risking your life, the plane, the mission, everything 
to go save someone else's life. Like I feel like having to say no or trying it or even take going a little bit past that line can be really hard to, to manage in that kind of situation. Yeah. It's, you know, until you've been faced with it, you really don't know how you're going to react. I yeah. think uh, you really have to compartmentalize well in that situation yeah. and you have a flying side and you have, and you have to look at that and you have to, separate the two, which is not easy to do when someone's yeah. down there dying. And, and, um, that goes back to that kind of your mindset as a, as the pilot, um, that we, that are successful in New Guinea. And you have to, you have to make that, you know, you, you really have to make that decision before you leave, you know, the ground. Um, and it's a, it's a way of, of operating. It's, it's, uh, it's never easy. And, and it's something that you, you carry with you. Because you know when you when you make a decision like that, and you have if you do decide not to land, which I've had to do before, you always wonder what what could I have made it out? You know, yeah. uh, those 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 things always give get you. Um, but you have to really look at, at the big mission. You know, you can mess it all up trying to save one person, and now you've jeopardized thousands of people. Absolutely, um, and that's nobody wants to be in that situation. But that's just the reality that we're in, and. And we know the airplanes. We've been trained well. Uh, safety is, is huge. Um, and so you have to make hard decisions, uh, just like we all do when we're flying airplanes uh, wherever we're at. And I think that for us is just another one of those hard decisions. Um, but, you know, you're tempted. I'm not going to lie. You know, you, 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 you want to believe you can do anything. And I think that's, uh, that's where as a pilot you have to to, to pull yourself back into the reality of, of safety and flying and what this plane can do. And I've, I've taken planes in places where, you know, um, I flew around, like I said, one time, 15 minutes down into the river around the corner. Can I get out? Can I get out? And I finally, uh, uh, was, was, uh, happy that I could. And I did. Um, but it was crazy. You know, it was, yeah. it was a wild, it was a wild ride. And, uh, and the, the plane did everything I thought it would do and, and everything worked out exactly as I, as I thought it would based on my experience. But I'll tell you, getting to that point and making that decision was, was very difficult. And, um, and other times you have to just go, go home. So. Yeah, it's tough. And it, it just adds to it because you know that you have the ability to save that person's life and, you also have to remember the big mission. Like you said, those communities are all very community focused and you got to remember that too, that they would rather you be there and alive so you can continue to serve their community at later time as well. So it's definitely a tough decision to make. And I feel like everyone, including myself would every once in a while be like, man, I just really want to land here to save this person's life and give them a chance. Just give them hope, you know? Oh, absolutely. And the good news is it's only happened a couple of times. There's other times where weather does the same thing. You know, you're not over a landing spot, looking down but you, you're you're looking at a wall of of black you know lightning and severe thunderstorms and it's the same thing you have to turn around and go back um you know that's that's just part of making those decisions you keep pressing on through the clouds and, and try to it's it's the same it's a different thing because you're not looking down at someone in a canoe but it's the same idea you're turning around knowing that that person's mm-hmm. probably not going to make it and uh that's part of flying too you know uh, there's there's uh, there's other factors that go into there's safety factors with the air maintenance factors with the airplane that prop, crop up that you have to turn around sometimes. So yeah, I mean all of those things. Um, that's why the, the the finding that person who can can categorize can make those decisions. Um, it's why that's so important. The pilots that you have over there, 
it's more than just flying an airplane from point A to point B. Yeah. Uh, it's so much more that goes into that. I bet. Can you actually, what was I going to say, can you fly IFR? I know it's a different country, there's different regulations, but do you guys try to say VFR the whole time? Do you guys fly IFR when you have to? Yeah, we're VFR over there. Um, you know, there's, we all, it's always, uh, you You know, that's the stock answer. We're VFR. Yeah. Um, if you ever got into a crazy situation, you could go IFR if you had to, but it's it's not something we do. Um, you know, if you can't get their VFR, we're not going. And, uh, so it's, um, we're all IFR commercial trained pilots. So, you know, if you ever got in a situation, you're not, it's not like you're worried about other planes being around in this area. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a cloud separation issue. Um, and so we're all trained to, to, to deal with that, but that's, that's, that's not how we operate. We're VFR. Okay. Over yeah, I'm yeah. sure the weather there changes all the time too. So I'm sure that sometimes that can really hurt you, or might even put you in a place where you're stuck in this village or stuck in a place that you didn't want to be stuck in. So, well, that's that's the reality. I've had to spend the night before uh, because I couldn't get out. You know, and that's just part of part of what we do as well. Uh, I've had to turn around probably four or five times um, going out to pick someone up. So you 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 have to make those decisions and. Um, that the weather's so severe over there yeah. other than the, the morning fog, once you get the, the big cumulonimbus buildups, you know, you're not, you're not going in that anyway. It's yeah. <laughs> at least you shouldn't be. How are you perceived by these, uh, by these other communities? I know you talked about the government loves you guys and really respects what you're doing. How do you, I'm guessing you had to win over the trust. Cause like you said, they've never seen an airplane before. This is all new to them. You're taking them to new places. What was it like winning that trust and getting them on board? And I'm sure now, not necessarily, but I'm sure now they are, they love seeing you come because you know, that means like you said, that is hope. How did you let them know that hope was on the way with an airplane? You know, that's a process. I think the uh, people know when you care, mm-hmm. you know, I think people know when you're, when you're there to serve, that's always been my goal is to, uh, to let people, to give people value, whether it's the kid on the street or whether it's the prime minister, whatever that is, it's, uh, of the country. It's, it, it's about valuing people and treating people with respect. And I yeah. think we've done that well. That's been a big focus. Um, I think, when you're not charging for a flight, you know, in this culture too, in the Papua New Guinean culture, a gift is actually an obligation. Yeah. So if you give somebody something over there, someone else usually is writing it down. And then when the situation comes up, you're expected to give that same gift or something better back. Uh-huh. And so for us to offer a free service and not charge is all, it, you know, it, in their minds in some way, they owe us. They don't owe us because we don't charge, but in their culture, they owe us because we've given them a free gift. Right. So I think in some ways, uh, you know, they look at it that way. They, they take care of our families uh, in the community um, whenever they can. And I'm getting, you know, I'm getting bird eggs and, and smoked fish and you know, papayas and pineapples and oh, yeah. watermelons and lettuce and greens. I mean, I'm the, I'll go in places and I'm, they're filling the plane up, you know, you're like, no, 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 no. I, yeah. you know, they, they want to give, you know, yeah. they, they do have this, uh, this desire to say thank you. And, and, and so we've just developed an amazing relationship, uh, for me. I mean, I go in most of these places. I'm, I'm this bald guy, you know, <laughs> the, the, the white bald guy. And, and, uh, they, they all, they all know, know who I am. I've been there a long time and, and our staff, same thing. And, and they know we care. And so we, we have the, the rapport in the village now. And, um, 
yeah, that people know what we do and, and they, that we have a track record of just serving without, without expectation. And I think that's a, that's a powerful, that's a powerful thing in itself. Absolutely. And, um, you know, for us as Christians, we, we look at that and I see it as, you know, we have, we have grace and the Christian faith and, and we're, we're kind of offering that to the, to the people in the, in the village where we're offering a service without, without expectation and just loving Absolutely. Uh, from that. And I think that's a powerful thing. Oh, no, for sure. It definitely is a powerful thing. And uh, I have uh, one more section for you, which will be really quick. And then I have one last question, but it's going to be a rapid fire section where I'm asking you a bunch of aviation themed questions and you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. What is your favorite plane you've ever flown? Oh, man. Uh, T6. Okay. What is your least favorite plane you've ever flown if you have one? I love flying airplanes, but a Cessna 150 is probably about the least favorite. <laughs> Unless it, some people say it fits them like a glove. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I do not fit that plane like a glove, or it does not fit me like a glove. <laughs> what is the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Uh, I just came back from Oshkosh, and I, I can't even tell you. I don't know the names of all these airplanes, but there was a, <laughs> a lot of, 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 of really ugly-looking airplanes. Interesting looking flies, planes. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I don't call airplanes ugly, but... Yeah. Yeah, That's if it flies, I, I, it's exciting to me. There you go. <laughs> and uh, if your perfect world, would you rather own a seaplane or a tricycle gear plane? Oh, seaplane. Seaplane. What is your I, dream seaplane you could ever have? If you could put any kind of floats on a plane and make it work, like you could put floats on a 787, would you do that? Or would you rather have a, a 206 or a caravan on floats? I, I think a Quest Kodiak on floats. There you would go. My, would be my dream. That'd plane. be cool. What's your favorite airline to fly on? Uh, American. What's your favorite airline livery or paint scheme? Oh, uh, probably American as well. What's your least favorite place to fly? Favorite place to fly. Um, could be a specific probably, airport to land probably, at. Yeah, probably New York. Are you talking about where I fly myself or anything, whatever, just in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, anywhere where it's hot, hot and, uh, there's no services. (laughs) Yeah. There there you go. Um, what is outside of quest Kodiak since you already said that for a seaplane, what is one plane you've always wanted to fly or buy? Uh, I think, uh, TBM. What is your favorite airline to fly on? Did you, I already ask you? You said American. What is, let's see, what's your favorite approach you've ever flown? Favorite approach? I think probably a uh, ILS into Palomar, uh, Carlsbad at uh, 200 overcast. <laughs> there you go. That's, uh, that's always fun. Yeah. I've been there a couple of times with the jet that I fly. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah. That low fog comes in. That's right. Yeah. Yep. All right. You are making a quick connection. It is, let's say you are going back to Papua New Guinea. You are flying, you have a connecting flight in LA. I don't know if this ever happened or what happened, but it's your last American meal for a while. You're in the airport. What's your go-to food that you would want to get? Uh, you know, funny thing is um, with our kids, we always ask them what they miss the most about America when we're in New Guinea. It's always food. <laughs> and uh, so in and out Burger is always a first place as a family. We always leave LA. We go straight to the nearest <laughs> in and out Burger. And that's always a first meal. Yeah. Uh, so that would probably be my last, my last meal, but in the airport. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, just anything that's, uh, 
American. That's really know, funny. Yeah. It's, it's good. Give me some grease, a burger and some fries and a milkshake animal style. Right. And you'll be all right. That's right. <laughs> That's funny. What is one thing you always have to have on your person while you're flying? Uh, I think, um, you know, in an airplane, it's a survival gear mm-hmm. uh, because you need to be able to survive out there in the wilds, um, you know, on your person. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that like a spot or something like thing. that, like a, a spot for GPS and then also like a raft or any kind of equipment. Yeah, we have a, a whole a whole survival gear and, and kit that's in the plane. We also use spider tracks mm-hmm. uh, that tracks us every two minutes on a flight uh, through an app uh, that we can get around the world. So that's. That's kind of standard. Uh, so for New Guinea, that, that I wouldn't want to leave without without having spider tracks and without yeah. having uh, a survival gear, you know, because when you're out in the wilds, you know, bug spray, you know, in New Guinea, you know, malaria is one of the biggest killers over there. And so Jeez. it's just little bugs that get you. Uh, so just having bug spray is, is a huge thing. A mosquito net, fishing gear, um, that sort of thing uh, is uh, for what for us is, is uh, vital. Absolutely. All right. Those are really all the, the questions I have for rapid fire. My last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Thank you for spending the time with me today. Would be you, uh, when this podcast comes out, you get uh, some emails about people that want to do what you're doing, or you've inspired them to do what you're doing. What are some tips, some tricks, some, they don't have any flying experience. They don't have anything, but they know they want to do what you do. How would you tell them to go about becoming a pilot for you guys or just a pilot for that type of flying in general? Yeah, I think the reality is you have to start somewhere, you know, and everybody starts flying by going down and getting instruction or going on a kind of inspirational flight at a flight school. Uh, you have to start it, the process. You know, we can talk. A lot of people like to talk and they just keep talking for years and years. Go do it. Yeah. Uh, you have to get your private license before you could even think and your, and your commercial instrument before you would even think about doing what we do anyway. So yep. go start. That's my first uh word of advice if if uh if you're going to do kind of the bush flying and the kind of flying that we're doing uh i think you you need to look at having a wide variety of of flying not just flying into uh you know stock airports and long run wide runways but you need to to have some experience and uh, mountain flying experience is a huge thing so mountain training would be a big thing learning how to control an airplane behind the power curve uh learning how to get in and out of tight areas um those are all the training that you need. Uh, and for us, uh, you know, having a, a mechanical background is huge as well. Um, it's a long process, though. You know, you start thinking about how many years it takes to get all of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's not easy. Um, and then, uh, you know, I am, we are recruiting pilots. Uh, the interesting thing about our pilots, they all raise their own money. They all raise, go to their friends and their churches and they, they ask them to support them. Uh, which keeps our costs down and allows us to serve these communities without uh-huh. charging. And so that's a whole other side of, of this thing is, uh, so it's really a calling or a passion, you know, we, we call it a calling where you really feel like you're, you're here on earth to, to, to go serve someone in a remote community and make a difference. Um, a lot of times for us, that comes from our Christian faith. Um, but that, that's, that's, a that's a huge part for, for, for people that want to work with us. And I'm, I'm going around America right now. We're on this hope in action tour. I'll be in a lot of different areas, uh, over the next several months. You can go to our website, SamaritanAviation.org. Uh, you can look us up on Facebook at Samaritan Aviation, Instagram, uh, and follow along. We have stories, uh, about uh, different stories from New Guinea, different things that we're doing in America. And when we're, we're at different locations, you can follow us and love to have you come out 
and and see us at an event. Come see the new airplane that's going to be serving and saving lives in Papua New Guinea uh, here next year. And um, yeah, we'd love to meet you and talk to you in person and tell you more of our story of the life-saving work that we do in Papua New Guinea. It's amazing. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you spending the time today with me and I wish you the best. And if there's anything I can do to help spread the word, by all means, I'll do it. I'll, I'll plug all the stuff on uh, Instagram and everything we post to help spread the word for what you're doing because it's great stuff and it, it's something that needs to be done. And it's one of those things where people know it needs to be done, but like you actually went out and did it. And that is so cool. And I appreciate that. And we appreciate you. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. And that is a wrap of episode number 75 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review. Check out our Patreon page. You can get some cool swag there. So make sure you check it out. Thanks, Thomas London. Enjoy your shirt. And please share this with everyone. Everyone aviation or non-aviation, just share the word of the podcast. Help it get out. Let more people know that it is out there and make them aware. Aviation, as always, have a great day and happy flying.